there's a lot of myth out there that individuals believe that the protein requirements are different for men versus women. And that's actually not true. Protein requirements are based on blood volume and lean muscle mass or ideal body weight. Has nothing to do with gender. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? What we do in life echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I'm really excited for this conversation. I sat down to speak with Dr. Gabrielle Leon, and she is a functional medicine physician out of New York City, and she practices something called muscle-centric medicine. So what that means is putting the organ system of the muscles, so the, the muscular system, at the center of her practice. She is an advocate that muscle is the largest endocrine and metabolic organ in the body. And it relates very intimately with our current healthcare crisis in terms of obesity, in terms of functionality, in terms of longevity and performance. And she talks and is very well versed in many areas of clinical practice. So very well versed on nutrition. And we talked a lot about her expertise today as it relates to muscles, protein, muscle protein synthesis. We talked about animal proteins versus plant proteins and the differences between them. And we also got into a very interesting discussion with the recent film, The Game Changers, which is a plant-based uh, film based on this idea that plant-based is superior to a meat-based diet. So we talk about some of the things that she liked about the film, some of the things that she didn't like, where she thought the science was lacking, some of the claims, etc. And I had a few thoughts on it as well that I shared in this podcast. And then we got into a discussion around mindset. So a lot of her practice, she's married to a Navy SEAL and she sees a lot of Navy SEALs and a lot of the Canadian military in her practice. She talks about some of the different attitudes and mindsets and the way that they approach problems and how that's different than civilians. So she gave a couple of really great examples about that. And we had a really nice conversation around mental grit, mental toughness, and how to reframe things. So I thought that was a really useful discussion that came towards the end of our hour and a half or so conversation. And something I really like about Gabrielle is her ability to take, you know, we were talking about very complex things. We're talking about mTOR, complex one. We're talking about amino acid profile and limiting amino acids and ketogenic amino acids and all these different things that really require quite a bit of training, formal training. And she's able to explain it in a way that I thought, no matter where you are in your journey, whether you are just beginning in your health journey or you have a PhD in nutrition, I think you can take some value out of this conversation. Now, she is very much an animal protein advocate, and we talked about some of the differences between the long-term things that she sees in clinical practice in terms of vitamin deficiencies that she 
sees in vegans and vegetarians and how to counteract that. And if people are going to choose to be on a plant-based, just derive their proteins uh, from plant-based sources, what they can do to drive muscle protein synthesis. And you'll see why this is important when we, when you get to the part of our conversation where we talk about leucine and the difference in availability of leucine, which is the primary amino acid that drives muscle protein synthesis and its abundance in plant uh, proteins versus animal proteins. So definitely want to wrap this in a bow and say that for the most part, I think Dr. Gabrielle and I are on the same page. We both believe in plant proteins. I'm a huge advocate for plant proteins. Uh, Where we both agree is that there are animal proteins are very necessary for preventing things like B12 deficiency, D3, and other things like omega-3s. And we talk about ways that if you are vegetarian for ethical reasons or because you're concerned about the planet, uh, and I have to say I agree with all of those things, the way that the animals are treated, the way that they live and the way that they die, she does give some, some useful examples in terms of how to how to get around that. If you still want to stay vegetarian and vegan, you know, certain branched chain amino acids and certain strategies that she talks about in terms of how to continue to be vegan or vegetarian and still drive that muscle quality, that quality of, of muscle and to maintain that lean muscle mass over the course of your life. So I hope that you, I hope that you enjoy this. I certainly did. I thought she knocked this out of the park. So without Further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Leon. All right, Dr. Gabrielle Leon, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Me too. I am glad that we made this work. Yeah, me too. And there's a couple of reschedules that I had to do on my end, but thrilled that you've made the uh, the accommodations. And I'm so I'm so excited for our conversation because you know, like I was saying to you in the pre-chat, I want to explore a range of topics that I know that you are an expert on. So I want to talk about muscles. I want to talk about protein. I want to talk about animal protein, plant protein, the scope of practice. I know you have a clinic and you are running things uh, in New York City. And, you know, maybe we can start off this conversation with probably the most important topic of all, which is which is motherhood. Yeah. Uh, your new mama. Uh, That's right. Yeah. So baby uh, Aries, she's, is she 15 weeks? She is um, four months yesterday. Four months yesterday. It's amazing. 16 weeks. It's, it's incredible. You know, I've been thinking a lot about what significant life events change one completely. There's the before and the after. Yeah. I would say there's probably two and that's death, right? You're no longer the same person. And birth, it is an instantaneous rite of passage. So it, it's been pretty wild, for sure. When you bring a new life into the world, it really changes your perspective. I so agree with that. And I was, you know, I think for someone who is, you know, driven like me, and of course, I see you are very ambitious, very driven, very data and empirically and evidence-based. I think it's it's such a cataclysm like you know these worlds collide where you I never thought when I had my first son that I could love somebody as much as I loved him and I would I would just spend hours staring at him I would just like my whole day I was like what did I do oh I stared at him and I breastfed him that's what I did yeah how long did you do that for uh I breastfed my first so Andreas I breastfed him for about I think it was 18 or 19 months yeah 
And Sebastian, my second child, second child syndrome, it was three years. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm thinking six months and I'm done. I want you to get the immunoglobulins you need and I'm done breastfeeding you. Yeah. Even my, my three-year-old, he was three at the time. So now he's, he's seven now. And even sometimes he'll be like, mommy, is there any more milk left in there? I'm like, no, the, you know, the booby fairy came, she took my milk, you know, <laughs> gave them to, you know, the next mama who need them. So yeah, it was, uh, we breastfed for a long time. And that was actually, you know, my, one of my questions I wanted to ask you was, was there anything that surprised you in terms of that, that passage of becoming a mother? For me, it was breastfeeding. Like I was so floored with how difficult it was and how no one was talking about it. Yeah. Was there something like that for you? Did you find that there was anything that surprised you about pregnancy, labor? Absolutely. Delivery? So there's the pregnancy aspect, which, you know, you and I have, kind of talked about and we're friends. We see each other outside of this podcast. Yeah, I was yeah. sick for 10 months. Yeah. I would say that many women don't experience that. Mm -hmm. And it really is very profound when you're nauseous and vomiting for 10 months. So that, that was something interesting. The other interesting aspect of that is you can learn to adjust to any circumstance. It didn't matter how sick I was. I was still training. I was still mm -hmm. seeing patients. I was traveling around the country speaking. The peripheral stuff fell away. The addition of, you know, doing additional things like writing and extraneous stuff fell to the wayside. But it was very interesting to see how you can kind of adjust your life to the experience. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. that becomes your norm. Birth was also interesting. I did a natural birth. I actually was induced. My water broke early. I was induced with Pitocin, which any mom will tell you. I don't know if that happened to you. It's very painful. That was my first, my first birth. Was a, I had that experience too. Water broke. They're like, let's actually, there's meconium. I had meconium in, um, in the water, in the, in the, um, in the water that was passed and like, let's, let's actually get this baby out right now. Cause we want to make sure that he hadn't ingested any. Right. Yeah. I didn't have that part, um, but I did have the early water breaking and I had to yep. be in And I still did the birth naturally, which was incredibly painful. I think that it's um, totally doable for women. I mm -hmm. think there's a ton of fear surrounding a natural birth. It's uh, an exchange. There's a pain exchange for a product. That's right. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And it's temporary. It's transient too, totally right? temporary. So yeah. It, yeah, it wasn't even an issue. I mean, I labored over 10 hours. It was very painful, but it was, you know, it's kind of the equivalent to running a race or doing a sporting event. And right. It was, that wasn't really an issue. Breastfeeding was very hard for me. It, you know what? It is for most women. Most women that I've spoken to, we all think about the labor and the delivery and we you know, share stories. And I think that that's amazing, but not enough of us are taught. I had, a, so I delivered in a hospital. I had midwives uh, that facilitated the delivery. And then postpartum, they came to the house to you know, check on the baby. And one of them was a lactation consultant. So I had coaching from an LC. Like, so she was telling me, how I still, my nipples were cracked. They were bleeding. Totally. I was walking around with potatoes and cabbage in my, in my tops when I, when I wasn't, it was horrendous for two weeks. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that was the most surprising aspect. It, for me, it felt like someone was putting a piece of glass in each nipple Yeah. <laughs> every two <laughs> hours and twisting it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it kind of blew my mind. So that, that was, um, uh, way more challenging than I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And you're not alone there. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that we sort of stumbled onto this topic because I think that like I was saying, I think we all talk about the labor, you know, we know in pregnancy at this certain week, you know, your baby's the size of a potato. And then at this week, it's the size of a whatever, but we don't talk about how difficult the, you know, there, I always say there ain't no hood like motherhood, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. no, there's no one really prepares you for the, first of all, the overwhelm, like the the recovery from that marathon, which is labor and delivery. Yeah but also things like breastfeeding. And I think a lot of people give up prematurely because they are just gobsmacked and taken off. There's a right hook and they weren't really expecting it. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's you know, going to be really useful and valuable for our listeners. Yeah, they should definitely not give up. You, you know, you figure it out. So let's talk about your training and your nutrition. So I know, um, so Aries is, you know, four months now. Uh, are you back to training? Are you, how has your nutrition changed? Like what's, what's kind of going on there? <laughs> so while I was pregnant, it was this really funny thing. I am a really high protein person and it's just always worked well for me. And when I say high protein, I mean, you know, close to 130 to 150 grams a day. Mm-hmm. And um, I've functioned well like that for years. When I got pregnant, I actually couldn't eat protein. So my diet changed very drastically. And it was pretty high in carbohydrates. And as soon as I gave birth, I was able to switch back to a higher protein diet. So really, my nutrition now is back to a, a higher protein diet. And my training, I typically do weights, kettlebells, uh, compound movements. And that has been a challenge. I'm back training, but it's slower, right? Your body isn't, doesn't move the same way. Your center of gravity is now changed. You, you know, it's, it's been an interesting transition. Right. Right. And I've seen on Instagram uh, and I've sent you, you know, my little messages when I see, you know, she's in the little carrier off to the side and she's right. giving you like the stank guy while you're like kind of hustling on the, on the stepmaster, right? Right. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, it's interesting. You have this, um, new perspective. It's not just about you. You now are responsible for this little being. And there's a pull when you hear the cry and then the crying goes on. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to balance both. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I have gone back to training with kettlebells. My strength is incredibly diminished. I just did my measurements and body fat for the first time postpartum and it's significantly higher yeah. than it, it has been my entire life. So it's interesting. It's interesting. And I think, you know, you are someone who is very empirically and very data driven. So obviously I'm singing to the choir here when I say, you know, nine months up, nine months down, right? So to have at 16 weeks, you're just sort of what I would classify as like trimester four, right? You're just kind of getting out of, you know, your body being used to being pregnant. And it'll be interesting to see your changes over, uh, over the course of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think to myself, am I not trying hard enough? Am I not pushing hard enough? It's, a, it's an interesting perspective because I am very data-driven mm-hmm. and I'm also very uh, aware of an internal dialogue and, yeah. and tolerating excuses. Mm-hmm. You know, I always ask myself, am I being tough enough on myself, right? Because there is a softness that exists outside that says, okay, well, you know, you can just kind of coast and um, maybe do less. And I, I find that that's dangerous for people because will that extend longer? Right. Right. And, and I don't know that I, I don't know the answer. I mean, it's all, it's all totally new. I would agree with that. And I think, 
you know, I, I always keep the mantra in my mind, like the only way to coast is downhill. Like you can't, like the only way that you coast in a car is if you're, if the gravity is, the, if the gravity is doing the work. Right. So I agree with you. And I, I, I too struggle with that dialogue. So there is a, there is a blending and a marriage of that. I like to call it more masculine energy where it's very, you know, data driven, task driven, you know, am I checking off all the boxes? And the more feminine or softer energy where I'm checking in with myself and saying, am I, am I tired? Do I need, do I really need a break here? You know, and you are still breastfeeding and there's, so there's that energetic expenditure of create, you know, so there's all these different kind of things that are, that play into it. But I, I, yeah, the overachiever in me loves and honors the overachiever in you. Like I get it, girl. I get it. You know, I I really just want to have that I want to expose that, that very frank nature, right? Because, you know, I see it with my patients. The moment we become comfortable mm. is the moment that our, our progress stops. Right. And there's a certain level of comfort to say, okay, well, you know, I've been breastfeeding and home for four months and there's a certain level of comfort and that's my new normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the moment there becomes a level of comfort is the moment you are no longer growing in a certain way, right? right? So now it's the next phase that you have to ask yourself, is this, is this where it should be? Am I doing what I should be doing? So this parses really well with where I want to go with our conversation around muscles, because I think muscles are, you've talked about this idea that muscles are the organ of longevity. Of course, protein, proteins are and we'll we'll talk about proteins as well. Proteins are in every single cell of our body, right? We need right. them. This is such a hot topic right now. And I wanted you to come on to dissect this and make sense of the data so that people can listen to your to our conversation and make an informed decision for that, you know, in terms of what's best for them. So let's talk about, let's start from the forest and then we're yes. going to kind of get into the trees and then we're going to get into the granular stuff. So why do you believe that muscles are the organ of longevity? So muscle is very interesting. A lot For the longest time, people thought that it was this... Um, object of locomotion, right? It's the tissue of locomotion. Mm -hmm. But actually muscle is much more than that. It is, and there is scientific data, that it is an organ. And by mass, it is the largest endocrine organ in the body. What do I mean by that? Well, when you contract muscles, they secrete a substance called myokines. And myokines are um, proteins, they're anti-inflammatory, there's multiple ones, they go to different parts of the body, and they do different things. It's still a very new science, but it, it is an endocrine organ. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, so muscle as it relates to an organ that secretes things. Now the other side of muscle is that it is, it's, it's our metabolic currency. It is responsible for... of uh, glucose disposal. So glucose disposal, the carbohydrates that we eat, it is one of the largest sites for lipid oxidation. A lot of people talk about, well, you know, I have high cholesterol, I should take a statin. Uh, Another way of thinking about that is the more muscle you have, the more uh, fat you're oxidizing. Mm -hmm. It is largely responsible for our resting metabolic rate. And that's the amount of energy that we're burning at rest. Also, muscle is our biggest protector for chronic disease, from chronic disease. So obesity, hypertension, 
Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, these are all diseases of metabolic dysregulation. Right. And muscle is really that kind of golden egg to protect you as you age. So that's kind of like the big picture. And on that note, one of the other uh, concepts of muscle-centric medicine, which is this, this term that I, uh, I coined this term from my years of training, is that we focus on being over fat. Everybody's focused on obesity, over fatness, mm-hmm. body fat percent. But the issue is actually being under muscled. Right. And, and it's such a new concept that we don't even know. So for you, I don't know what percent muscle mass you should be. And for me, we don't know that, that answer either mm-hmm. because we've spent decades focusing on the problem, on, on a problem as opposed to a solution. Right. And I, I love what you're saying in terms of the muscles being an as a whole, the largest organ in the body being an endocrine organ. And just to extend on what you were saying around my- myokines, these are, you know, anti-inflammatory, as you said, they're, you know, when you contract your muscle, that's when they're released. Interestingly, that's where, you know, we see receptors, myokine receptors in the brain, bone, liver, yep. and pancreas. So this is backing up everything that you're saying in terms of this is an endocrine and metabolic organ. There's no reason why there would be myokine receptors on the liver liver on the, or the pancreas if the muscles weren't intimately connected with this metab- like this metabolic component of our health. I like this idea of the excess adiposity or the excess fat not being the problem. It's this under muscle, it's being yeah. under muscled. One of my mentors, his name is uh, Dr. Michael Hall. He's a functional, uh, functional neurologist. And I remember once he was in Toronto and I was attending one of his lectures he was saying, we have these you know, devices, these Fitbits and whatever that tell us that we need to be walking 10,000 steps a day. And he said, you know, when we look at our ancestors, they were, they were taking 20 to 25K, like 20 to 25,000 steps of this like low level activity through the day. Yes. And most of us don't even hit the 10K, you know, the Fitbit recommendation or maybe not just Fitbit, but you know, that's the yeah. most common, I think, you know, sensor that uh, people use. People don't even get that. So there's also this idea of the sedentary lifestyle. Yes. We're very domesticated as a a culture. Mm -hmm. We're a domesticated culture. Yeah. And with that, it actually, we have to evolve what we're eating to make up for that. Right. And if you don't, I mean, your your work is, you know, your post, I think your post-grad work was in sarcopenic obesity. It, my post-grad work was, yes, it was in obesity medicine and geriatrics. And geriatrics. And sciences. So all of that um, combined. And part of that is obesogenic sarcopenia. So let's talk about, let's define obesogenic sarcopenia for the listener, what yeah. happens, and then let's talk about some of the ways that we can prevent it and, and, and clinically what you, what you see and some of the prophylactic things that we can take with it. Absolutely. So let's start with defining what sarcopenia is. Everybody's heard, probably heard about sarcopenia as it relates to a disease of aging. So you see a frail elderly person and you think, wow, this person has sarcopenia, they've lost all their muscle. But actually, sarcopenia is not a disease of aging. It, and obesogenic sarcopenia is just the concept that it's a now over fat, fat infiltrates into the muscle. You've now become over fat and under muscled. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the equivalent to a marbled steak. Good for dinner, not so good for humans. <laughs> totally. Right? Keep, yeah. your, keep your fat out of uh, your muscle and just keep it in, into the steak that you're eating. Yeah, yeah. 
so sarcopenia is a disease that can happen in midlife. And really, it's the destruction of muscle tissue and its muscle size and muscle strength. And really, it comes from underuse. I mean, there's a few things that, it, that can happen with it. It's underuse, so being sedentary. It's having low-grade inflammation, poor, low-protein diet. Mm-hmm. Medications can do it. So there, there are a few things that contribute to sarcopenia, insulin resistance. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's a disease. So the loss of muscle is actually a disease. It has its own ICD-10 code now. Yeah. It's interesting. And so how do you, so if someone is listening to this and they're like, you know what, I'm 45, 45 year old woman, I, or, or male, you know, I sit at my desk for eight or nine hours a day. I know that when I get home, you know, I may sit for another couple of hours, you know, watching TV or what have you. If they were a patient in your clinic, is there, or, or maybe they don't necessarily have to be a patient. Is there ways for us to determine how we can, is there ways to evaluate muscle mass uh, and functional strength? Like what are some of the yes. ways that we can so do this? That? Is, this is a really good question. Now, the ways in which they traditionally do it aren't super valuable for the younger population. So they traditionally do it through walking speed and grip strength. Mm-hmm. It's not a great way because there's a level of capacity for a younger individual that can kind of make up for those, you know, poor quality muscle. Mm-hmm. So the way in which you would determine it in the elderly is we don't have a great way to determine it in, in our youth. Definitely you can see it on imaging, but that's not a standard, a standard way. Right. And it's not available to everybody. DEXA, you know, if you're talking about DEXA, I'm assuming you're talking about DEXA. And MRI. So you can see, um, you can see the quality of the tissue Mm -hmm. and that's not really, no one is going to just image you. I mean, you can get a body fat percentage um, and a muscle mass, but it's not going to tell you the quality of your tissue. Mm -hmm. So on the periphery, you can, you know, in blood work, you can also look at how high is their insulin, their fasting insulin right? It should be less than six. And the mm-hmm. average, you know, it should be, I mean, personally, in my clinic, I like to see it less than five, right. but it, you know, it should be between four and six in the blood. And the average individual has it closer to nine, right? if not higher. Right. Because sarcopenia, as it rela- relates to the disease of the muscle, is really an issue of um, that the, the stores become full. So the glycogen synthase, the glycogen storage becomes full. And you begin to start overspilling um, fats, fatty acids into the blood. You know, so you'll start to see it. You'll see elevated cholesterol. You'll see elevated insulin. It's, you'll see um, elevated glucose. Let's parse this with the, I know we talked about when we were in, in the pre-chat before we got on here, we want to talk about the protage study because I think that this really goes well with what we're talking about here. So what is the protage? And we'll link this out into the show notes yeah. just for anyone listening so they can take a look at it themselves. So what is this study? This is yeah. really, and, and what was it designed for? Can you walk us through what yeah. that is? Yeah. So protage study is very valuable and actually it's a position paper. So it's a position paper that got together all... Um, sarcopenic experts, uh, mm-hmm. geriatricians, nutritionists, physiologists, to determine the amount of protein needed to protect individuals. Okay. And largely from sarcopenia and aging, so age-related issues. Because the current recommendation for protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram. And that's based on nitrogen balance studies that happens, you know, for, for 18-year-old young men. Right. And that's uh, not really valid. And, you know, with science, everything evolves. So we have to be able to evolve with the science. So they, they came up with the, the new recommendations, which is 
a minimum of 1.2 grams per kilogram up to about 1.5 grams per kilogram, if not even a little bit higher, as a baseline to protect the aging population. As a baseline? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So we have a 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram. What, what, it's Are about your- double. So it's about double. So the disease, so RDA is basically disease prevention, right? So this is right. the minimum amount that you need to maintain for disease. And that's not optimal <laughs> living. That's just not, right. d- not wasting away. Correct. And in fact, they've doubled that recommendation. So I've heard, you know, I was in figure competitions. I know you and I have talked about this. You were doing this as well. At the gym, there tends to be this sentiment around one gram of protein per per pound of body weight. So if we think about, um, if we think about protein synthesis, I mean, first of all, I think, and I'd like to talk about the differences between a young person in driving muscle protein synthesis and someone who is aged or elderly. Right. But what are your, what are your thoughts on, one gram of protein per pound of body weight. So that's about, that would be about 2.2 grams. Wait, am I doing that right? Kilogram. Kilogram is two. Yeah, 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. So that is safe and um, it's a good baseline recommendation. It Mm -hmm. it absolutely is safe um, and is a good baseline recommendation for really everybody. So... I mean, that's how I start in my clinic, mm-hmm. but anything above 250 grams, I, I tend not to go higher than that just because of the capacity to dispose of urea. Right, um, right, right, right. Okay. In the, when I was reading the study, they talked about the difference between fast and slow protein. Do you want to comment on, on that at all in terms of explaining sure. what is a fast protein? What <laughs> is a slow protein? So, and that position came, that position paper, while so still very valid, came out a a little while ago. So I don't use slow protein. So the whole point, and so let's think a fast protein is something that is absorbed quickly. Okay. And then a casein is something that is absorbed, you know, it's a slower protein. Okay. Now, when we think about- Fast protein would be like whey, sorry to interrupt you, but whey protein would be fast, casein that we see proteins in cheeses and stuff slow. Okay. Exactly. So all the studies are based, when it comes to muscle protein synthesis, are based on leucine. In okay. order to trigger muscle protein synthesis, the blood volume of leucine needs to reach a certain level. And in order to get that um, muscle protein turnover, that muscle protein synthesis to happen, that machinery to happen, it needs to be at about 2.5 grams okay. of leucine per meal. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, it needs to happen quickly because it is based on blood leucine amounts. So if you are, for example, sipping a casein protein over the day or over an hour, you're not going to get that muscle protein synthesis because you will never reach that threshold. And I see this, people make this mistake all the time in clinic. um, And just in general is they'll sip on say branch chain amino acids, or they'll sip on their whey protein shake. In order to optimize your metabolism and optimize the whole point of what you're trying to do, it actually needs to be fed in a bolus amount. Mm-hmm. So within so right at, minutes, all at once. That's yeah. right. Within 30 mm-hmm. minutes. Mm-hmm. Once it reaches a threshold, that's when you trigger the machinery. So a casein protein, if it's taking time to get in and you're not actually getting a peak level of leucine, then um, you're really doing yourself a disservice. 
So this is a this is a question I have. I get asked this question all the time. I have a certain opinion on it, but I'd be you know excited to hear what you have to say. When we think about timing of protein yeah. as it relates to your exercise, yes, you know, is it best to? Is there a time window yes. in terms of when to eat your protein, and if so, what is that timeline? Yes, or time uh, that time yes. frame. Uh, the data is very mixed on this out there, but I will tell you for the aging population. Now, when I say aging, and you know, taking it back to sarcopenic obesity, aging is also, there's a state of low-grade inflammation. Mm -hmm. And obesity is a state of low-grade inflammation. So if you're not really at your optimal body composition and you have a little extra weight, there is a blunted response to muscle protein synthesis. Already. Yes. Yeah. And and there's uh, one paper that came out, I think it was by Burke. It's it's very interesting. I'll see if I can find it and send it to you. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a 30-year-old with the same kind of anabolic resistance as a older individual. Therefore, one way to overcome that anabolic resistance, which is a blunted response to protein, is to have protein right after your training because you have increased blood flow. So now you have increased nutrient delivery to the muscle tissue. So they're primed to be taking it up. Exactly. They are now primed to absorb the amino acids. So let's talk about, let's go, let's go deeper in muscle protein synthesis. We've talked a little bit about uh, exercise. So there's, there's two main ways that we, that we initiate muscle protein synthesis. One is through the diet and one is through exercise. That's right. And of course, together, we're going to have a, you know, an amalgamation or an, uh, you know, an increased effect when we do that together. So let's, let's just start with diet. When we think about over the course of our life is our ability to generate muscle, to initiate muscle protein synthesis. Does this change from, you know, being in our twenties or our thirties to being, you know, (laughs) forties, which is where I am now and fifties and and beyond. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So when you're young, your body, your, your body composition, muscle protein synthesis is driven by hormones. It's driven by insulin. It's driven by growth hormones you know, testosterone and the sex hormones. Mm -hmm. But as you age, typically when you hit around 40, testosterone becomes lower. um, IGF-1 becomes lower. The Mm -hmm. anabolic hormones are are lower. So now you begin to drive muscle protein synthesis by a different way. And you don't want to drive it with insulin, right? So you don't want to get um, large spikes of insulin. You want to drive your muscle tissue by resistance exercise and by training. Um, sorry, by resistance exercise and by diet. You really yes. have to you have to evolve your diet from the way that you ate when you were younger to much more targeted. You have to be much more targeted as you age, especially when you hit your 40s and you're no longer driven by hormones. And is there are there gender differences there? So do we see differences between men, like the protein requirements to drive MPS in men versus MPS in females? Yes. No, because it's based on blood volume. It's based on, oh, okay. It is based on blood volume. So that's a, it's a, that's a really important point to bring up. So let, let's clarify that. There's a lot of myth out there that individuals believe that the protein requirements are different for men versus women. And that's actually not true. Protein requirements are based on blood volume and lean muscle mass or ideal body weight. It has nothing to do with gender. 
So for example, yeah, Mm -hmm. yes. So for example, that allows us to really streamline the information. We know that at say, you know, someone who's in their thirties or forties that you need a minimum of 30 grams of high quality protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Now, whether that's a man or a woman, they still need the minimum of 30 grams because of the blood volume to get the amount of leucine in the blood is the same for a man or woman. Okay. So from that 30 grams of protein, we're extracting that two to two and a half grams of leucine. Okay. So, okay. Okay. And that's what's, and and that's really interesting. So it's not, there is not a gender difference. But blood volume, I mean, that makes a lot of sense too. Like to do it from by blood volume. That's great. And then do we max out? Is there a certain amount of, um, protein at which the benefit for MPS is no longer, do we no longer see that? Or is it that 2.5 is that minimum amount, like that 20, let's say 25 grams or so of whey protein or whatever it is? Yes. So you probably max out at around 60. There's no benefit. So the, you know, it's an initiation of 30 grams uh, for that two and a half grams of leucine, but that doesn't mean that you've maxed out your machinery. So it's probably more optimal between 30 and 50. And once you hit 60, you absorb it all, but the utilization isn't, you're not getting a more robust response at that so point. So the 2.5 is just, let's just start oiling the gears so they start turning. Right. Okay. Right. So let's, so we talked about diet. We've seen, you know, this changes from our 20s and 30s to 40s and beyond in terms of our, you know, we become more anabolic. What I'm hearing from you is that we're becoming more anabolic resistant. There's yes. more resistance as we age. So we therefore need to overcome that with more protein. Right. And that's a really, that's a, a very exceptionally important point. Right. And I think that the opposite, I often see the opposite in practice. I often see that people will reduce their protein as they age, which yes. when we're thinking about this through the lens of longevity and through the lens of maintaining lean muscle mass is the opposite of what you actually want to be doing. It is probably the single worst piece of advice that anyone could be given is to in midlife go vegan or vegetarian and right. really reduce your protein intake. It's probably the, and I think it's one of the things that really, uh, fires me up because mm-hmm. you know I did a fellowship in aging, a legitimate right. fellowship at Wash U in geriatrics where you know you're at the bedside of hundreds of dying individuals mm-hmm. that they've now fallen, they've broken a hip, and they're in the hospital and they, they cannot recover because their muscle mass is so poor. Right. You, you know the the conversation changes dramatically as we start talking about aging. Everybody mm-hmm. can argue when you're younger, right? Go ahead argue is paleo better, is veganism better, is vegetarianism, go ahead and argue. But now when you start hitting 40, 50, 60, it's a completely different argument. And no qualified health professional is going to say, you know what, you're aging, let's reduce your protein. It's dangerous. Right. Right. And I think that that is when we and this is one I, I know we're going to talk about this when we get if we get to uh, game changers which is a new sort of documentary on plant based um, performance and athleticism but that's the missing piece of information that I found through the entire film is there's a difference between information yes. Yes. and application so there's a difference between being a clinician like yourself who sees things on the front line that goes to war every day yes. versus this paper was better than this paper for x y like I am not discounting 
we need good quality evidence. And I am 98 to 99% there with you know, some of the reasons why people eat plants. We have the polyphenols and the flavonoids and the, you know, and the, and the xenohormetic, like hormetic stressors from resveratrol and ECGC. I'm all there. And I also think, you know, factory farm and, uh, you know, factory farming is terrible for the animals, terrible for the environment. We need more grass fed, grass finished, you know, animals in their more natural habitat. However, however, the clinical application of what is being proposed, I think is poor. It is very difficult for someone who is vegetarian. And and I've seen this enough in practice that I don't feel like I'm being unfair here, you know, and I would assume that you are the same too. You, you, when you're in practice, you just see patterns and my vegetarians and my vegans love them with, they're like the most health conscious people on the planet, but they're the ones that I deal with, with the most deficiencies. They're the ones where I see the B12 stuff. I see the D3 stuff. I see, you know, that's the, you know, the application of the information becomes very difficult for most of them. So I appreciate you bringing that up because that was my big beef, <laughs> if, you know, pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was my big beef movie because it's all information and there's a difference between a, being a researcher and being a clinician. Right. And, you know, you didn't have, and I don't even call that, that was not even a documentary. That was a film. And that's why I was able to say what it did because there's no scientific peer-reviewed ramifications for a film. Yeah. Right. It's, it's purely entertainment. I mean, the science is, is laughable mm-hmm. in, in all of it. The, mm-hmm. you know, they talked about that plant and animal protein are the same. I mean, these are hard numbers. Yeah. You know, you've got uh, protein quality where there's no dispute. I mean, this is in the science for decades. You know, at the very core of this film is an anti-animal narrative. And that's right. really what it's about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are talking about protein, which is, it totally is the black sheep of the macronutrient family. It's incredibly emotional for individuals. Right. Because it, it just is. So, and I don't, I don't blame, I don't actually blame totally. them for that because I think that the mo- factory farmed animals, the way their lives and their deaths are horrible. I agree yeah. with them. They're right. And it is ruining the environment. They, you know, no, well, no. Yeah. We should talk about the, you know, and I think the environmental aspect is, is another piece where people exploit the animals for uh, that anti-animal narrative. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I can, and I don't know how, what it is in Canada, but I, I'll tell you what it is in the U.S. All right. So for greenhouse gas, all of agriculture makes up 9%. All of agriculture. Of in terms that, of contribution to greenhouse gases. That's it. That's okay. it. Out of, okay. out of all the U.S. Uh, agriculture, it's greenhouse gas is 9%. Of that 9%, less than half is cattle. So if people really wanted to make a massive impact, and it is, it's the anti-animal narrative about cattle that is confusing people. Because here's the, 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 the reality is, is most people, when animals are treated well, have no issue eating them. Right? Right. Right. So if you don't have an issue eating animals, they're going to go after two things. And number one is it's bad for your health. And number two is it's bad for the environment. Right. So the vegan propaganda, there's propaganda behind this. The, the anti, I shouldn't even say vegan, the anti-animal narrative propaganda behind this mm-hmm. is to get you to A, feel that uh, protein and animals are bad for your health or B, animals are bad for the environment. Right. When the truth is beef consumption is down 
Mm-hmm. Out of all of greenhouse gas, 80% of it is from transportation, electricity, and industry. It's not from cattle. It's not from agriculture. But that's where, that's where the media is going because it's perpetuating the top. This, and this is, this is data from the EPA. And it's challenging for, you know, it's challenging information for the public. Yeah. And it's difficult to, it's, it's difficult as well. I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, who I know is a a colleague of, of, of both of ours and his whole sort of next wave of, you know, his next book and then the topics that he's really passionate about talking about is this idea of regenerative agriculture. Yes. And this idea of building up our topsoil so that it, yep. you know, the carbon sinks, so it will extract the carbon from the atmosphere and bring it down into the soil. And that only happens when you have cattle and, totally. you know, chickens and wh- whatever, you know, roaming the grasslands, pooping all over the place. That's actually what you need. Yes, yes, completely. And regenerative agriculture is, is going to be so helpful as we think about it in the future. Yeah. And he was saying something, it was ridiculous, like something like we only have 60 harvests left because the soil has been so depleted of its nutrients that after, you know, and I think we harvest, let's call it once a year, we have like 60 years left before we're in huge, huge trouble. So changing the narrative, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, you can't argue with numbers, right? So if it's 9% and then like half of that or less than half of that is coming from cattle. But now if we can use the animals, we can treat them the way that they deserve to be treated. They can, you know, roamly, free, freely roam, you know, the planet and do their thing. Um, You know, he had made a funny joke. Uh, We were talking about it. He's like, you know, this crazy thing called photosynthesis is going to be the thing that saves our planet, you know, and it's, it's true. If you have you know, cows and chickens and they're like, you know, pooping and peeing all over the place and you're building up that topsoil, you know, that you get this nutrient density in the soil that the plant can now integrate and make, and you get better plants as well. Yeah. And uh, that is definitely the way the future. So let's, uh, I have a, I have a selfish question for you. And this is actually something I had meant to ask you offline, but I'm going to ask you here. So I, when we just coming back to protein for a second, I train, uh, I have like a three day I train five to six days a week, resistance, resistant weights. And so the first day I do really heavy weights. So I need a spotter. It's like five rep maximum. You know, day two is like slightly lighter weights. You know, my reps go up to eight to 12. And then day three, I have, you know, even lighter weights. And then the reps are up at 20. The days that I do my heavy weights, the days where I have Giovanni spotting me because Mm -hmm. I'm going to drop the weight on my head or something. That's the day that I'm the hungriest. Yes. And those days, my first meal. So I don't, I typically will intermittent fast. So I might, you know, I'll, I'll work out fasted um, in the morning, let's call it seven or 7.30. And then my first meal is around 11. It needs to be, I always joke. I'm like, I'm feeding my legs right now because I want the high protein. So two questions. One with the high protein that I'm having, so this is like eggs, I may have steak, maybe some bacon on there, avocados, like a whole bunch of broccoli. Am I amplifying the muscle protein synthesis with the diet on that day? That's my question one. And number two, the days that I eat protein, a higher protein meal as my first meal in the day, I find I hit my macros with ease and grace. Yes. You know, the days where I, when I back end it, where I have my protein at dinner, yeah. I, I've been like snacking and like, I'm off my macros. Can you, right. is, am I, 
yeah. this is an anecdote, but yeah, is yeah, there, yeah. No, is this there is something? This? Yeah. So post-training, when you have um, a higher protein diet, mm-hmm. uh, at least a higher protein meal, you're going for um, muscle recovery. And let's say you were to add in, so it's just muscle protein synthesis and recovery that's happening there. Okay. Right? So you're getting everything, you're going to be repairing your tissue. So mm-hmm. you may be less sore. Now, carbohydrates, but you're not really refilling your muscle glycogen. Mm. So if you wanted to refill your muscle glycogen, you would add some kind of uh, complex carb. Okay. Um, Bro- is broccoli you, count? Yeah. Well, it, it does. It's very, you know, all carbs count, but it's very fibrous. And listen, at, when I'm training, I don't really eat a high carb meal anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that you and I are probably pretty much in alignment. We're not really on a daily basis eating higher carbs. No, um, you got to earn your carbs. Totally. <laughs> you got to earn time. them. You got to earn it 100%. <laughs> so um, post-training, a uh, higher protein, you know, really you should keep your protein consistent. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the first meal of the day, your first meal of the day, the first time you're eating doesn't have to be breakfast, but it needs to be high protein. Yeah. I love when I do that. I feel better when I have hot, like the most protein first time, my first feeding opportunity when it's high. Yep. And there's uh, studies from Heather Leidy's lab where they look at uh, brain imaging and we, and they know that if you have a high protein bolus, you're less likely to crave or want carbohydrates or to snack later on in the day. That's so, that's hundred percent true in MRI studies. Yes. So in my N equals one, like my own life, yeah. that is very true for me. When I have high protein in the, in the beginning, I hit my macros. I hit all my micronutrients. I'm, I'm much better off when I have that bigger protein meal in the first part of my day. Yes. And you're really yeah. working hard enough. So you're, you're hungrier because you're really stimulating your metabolism and you're working a large muscle group. Yeah. And so for someone who's not training as often as I am, it would be important for them to still... Yes. drive that MPS, maybe even on, you know, on their recovery days or their rest days, because if you're not getting the MPS from the resistance training, right. we want to get it from the diet. Right. And it's, it's even more important for them to be eating uh, optimal protein because you're stimulating your tissue. You're protecting your muscle. You're training hard. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if you weren't doing that? I mean, you have to earn your carbohydrates as is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you know, if you're not training, you shouldn't be eating more than 90 grams of carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can get all the carbs you need from protein. So for every 100 grams of protein, 60 grams gets converted to glucose mm-hmm. through gluconeogenesis. So Yeah. And I think for me, I, I, as a woman, I think, and this, this is just purely my opinion, I think when I think about how I want to age, you know, I want to be able to, you know, my son, my my middle son, he's nine, he's about 71 pounds. I still throw him up in the air. You know, my seven-year-old, again, I carry him everywhere when he wants to be carried. I want to, I want to maintain that as I get, I mean, of course, you know, when they're 17, I'm not going to be carrying them around, but you know, at the point where they might potentially have children and I'm a grandmother, I want to be able to lift my grandchildren up. I want to be able to travel with, you know, a luggage, you know, my luggage is, you know, you, I don't know if you're like me, but I travel very heavy. I'm always paying overage fees, but you know, like 30, 30, 35 pounds for the luggage. I want to be able to push it on the overhead bin. I want to be able to have the fluidity and strength as I age to be able to do the things that really matter to me. And I think women, I don't know if we'll get here, but I have a, the upper body strength of women. I have a, such a problem with. We can't do push up. You know, the push ups that we have are modified. 
and again, I know I'm going against scientific consensus a little bit here, but you know, w- when we talk about a woman's push-up, I want to I want to take someone's eye out. Like you should do push-ups on your toes. So anyway, I'll just get off my soapbox and but <laughs> but that but you know I I work out because of how I want to live in 20 or 30 years. I want to be able to lift and throw my grandkids up in the air. I want to travel and not have someone have to handle my baggage for me. Totally. Um, you know. And and that's um and that way of thinking is what is going to allow you to have exceptional health as you age. It is, you know, we see this this mind frame of aging that happens before individuals age. It's mm-hmm. I've hit this number, I'm not going to train hard, I'm going to get older, you know, it's it's really, it's, it's a mind frame of aging. It's coasting downhill. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about animal and plant proteins. You brought this up briefly. I want to, I want to dissect this a little bit more. So this was a huge point of contention. Uh, you know, if you've, uh, we were talking a little bit off uh, camera about some of the Joe Rogan debates with Dr. Joel Kahn and, you know, Chris Kresser and everything. This was a huge point of contention around the it's difference. It, it's, you, it can't be. I mean, it's a hard and fast number. It's weird. So let's talk about them. Let's, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about them. So animal proteins, advantages, pl- plant proteins, advantages, and then potential disadvantages of each. Let's talk okay. about those. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the big picture view. Yes. We have talked earlier in this podcast that you need two and a half grams of leucine to get muscle protein synthesis. Yep. We have talked that muscle is the organ of longevity and that it's going to protect you as you age. It's going to protect your metabolism. It's going to protect you um, from cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, right? All of that. And we know that in order to keep muscle healthy, you need around 30 grams of protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. This is not guesswork. This is in the literature, tons of research from Doug Patton-Jones, Stu Phillips, Dr. Donald Lehman. Mm-hmm. So we know it's two and a half grams of leucine. So now we've covered that and we've laid the foundation. For one three-ounce chicken breast or one three-ounce piece of beef, in order to get the equivalent plant protein, you need to eat between four and six cups of quinoa. We talked about how you need that nutrition at one time. You cannot graze. Right. Otherwise, you will be sub-threshold. You will never get that amount in the bloodstream, and you will never turn on that metabolic machinery. So what's the caloric? What are the calories? It's about a thousand calorie difference. So we a know. If, wow. yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, so right then and there, that's it. The conversation is essentially over. So, you know, you need two and a half grams of leucine, uh, the protein quality is really defined by the amino acid content. Yes. Plant, plants make the correct amino acids for plants. Mm-hmm. Animals make the correct amino acid profile for animals. So when we look at, when we look at animal or plant proteins, pardon me. So we look at, uh, I see a lot of pea, uh, pea proteins, soy proteins, wheat, rice, legumes, this kind of thing. Right. So six cups of, quinoa would give you 25 gram would that would give you 25 grams of yep, about 30 protein? grams of, okay. of protein but again of the leucine so it's really based on the leucine content okay so the leucine is sort of the thing that has to happen in order yes. to okay and this is where i think i lo- i am all for plants i eat a very much plant based diet but i also eat 
animal proteins because of this reason, this MPS. And I have a pea-based protein upstairs. Of course, they all vary. But the pea, it's like, I think when I was doing calculations, I would need like 40 grams. So if we're talking about 25 grams of whey, about 10% of that's going to be leucine, like 2.5 grams. But you would need almost 40% more. And I think that that actually parses well with the caloric difference there as well. You have to take in 40%, almost 40% more calories, which again is going to drive up, which is going to, there's going to be metabolic consequences to that as well. Like if you are in caloric excess, you know, nobody's going to argue that if you are taking in more calories that you're going to lose weight, like if you need to lose weight or maintain your weight. Right. I mean, and you can do it another way. You know, you can have a low quality protein meal and add in a branch chain amino acid if that's what you really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are ways around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pea protein is relatively new. This pea protein isolate, we have yeah. no idea of the long term consequences. Right. I mean, we don't know. People right. are just started to you know starting to eat these things, which is it's weird. So let's play devil's advocate for a second. Let's say there's a vegetarian or a vegan in your practice, and they're like, listen. I have an ethical issue. I don't want to yep. be eating meats. What would be your workaround for them? What would be the way that you would help someone who is vegetarian or vegan to be able to maintain and to drive this muscle protein synthesis to get that two and a half grams of leucine? How would you address that? I would give them a branch chain amino acid complex into their lower quality protein. Okay. If they wanted to have a, a serving of tofu, you know, we'd have to really make sure that they were calorically managed. So figure out whatever right. their caloric intake is going to be. Mm-hmm. And then you would divide their meals up. Um, I probably wouldn't feed them multiple times a day. They should probably look to feed twice, maybe three times a day. And mm-hmm. at each feeding, we would add in a branch chain amino acid. So leucine, isoleucine, valine, valine. thing. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. The other thing I think people forget about, and this is where I think vegetarian, you have to, and this is why I think there's a difference I was saying before, information and application Mm -hmm. to have a balanced amino acid profile. If you are vegetarian and vegan requires a, a lot of planning, which Uh I don't think a lot of people have the inclination or the skills or the time to do, but to have an understanding of how to combine amino acids, you know, limiting amino acids in plants and how to make sure that you are not deficient at least for me, who is, I'm a busy mom. I have three kids. I have, you know, I don't have. Gosh, I can't even imagine having three. But anyway, I can't. Like, I just don't no. have the time. And this is where I think, and it, this may be a really weak argument, but it's just easier to get a complete amino acid profile from meat, especially if you are conscious. Like vegans and vegetarians are some of the most health conscious people on the planet. They don't smoke, they don't drink. They're very particular and very conscious around the products that they buy. And at the end of the day, it's just easier for me to get that complete profile from meat because I just, I don't have the time. And, you know, you could argue the skill set to make sure that I am not going to be deficient in the things I've seen B12. It's almost always I see B12 issues. And because they often don't have fish or um, products that have a really good omega-3 profile, I see DHA and EPA. Like I see uh, omega-3 issues with them as well. And they're smaller. So bone density can be an issue too. Mm -hmm. Um, Protein is made from bone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So bone requires protein. And we had uh, had Dr. Jolene Brighton on the podcast, and she was talking about 
the issue that she has with vegetarian women who are on the pill because yeah. that also gobbles up your B12. B12 has yeah. been shown to gobble up um, B12. So when we talk about B12, I was looking up some B12 sources that are, that are plant-based and there's like, I think nori and I think tempeh, you know, if, what do you clinically see when you have someone who is a vegetarian or vegan in your practice, do you tend to see, is it the same? I'm seeing B12 yes. and, and D3 Almost and omega-3. Iron, their ferritin iron is notoriously well. low. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see ferritins in your, their 20s. And really for hair growth, it should be around 100. Yeah, wow. That's a storage form of iron. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. B12, omegas, ferritin, iron. Those are the big ones. Yeah. And of course, their energy. And then there's more subjective. So the energy, digestion. I see a ton of hair loss, poor dentition. Mm-hmm. All the things. And I, you know, the more, you know, I was trained uh, as a chiropractor. So the musculoskeletal system is, of course, my forte, as I know you are very well versed in it as well. And it is so, muscle and bone are just sisters, man. Like if you don't have one, you don't have the other. And you're, yeah. you know, you're, you know, you're, the bones in your teeth, the, there's some really interesting research around the, the, the skeletal system as well being this endocrine organ and the influence, the, you know, the talking that comes back and forth between the yeah. skeleton and the muscles. So let's move into growth pathways because I hear this a lot with, I've heard this, well, muscles, or muscles, uh, protein causes excess mTOR activation, therefore it must cause cancer. There's a huge misunderstanding when it comes to protein and cancer. And when you think about protein and cancer as it relates to mTOR, first of all, cancer is a disease of the genome, right? And when you think about cancers, you've got lung, breast, colon, prostate, right? And there's initiation factors that happen with all of this. Protein has never been shown to A, cause cancer ever in any of the research. When you think about mTOR, which is this um, serine uh, uh, kinase, which Mm -hmm. is this growth, uh, it's a growth complex. mTOR is a growth, is a cellular growth pathway. So there are some, you know, forms of cancer that, when they've become cancerous, there's a kind of like a, a propagation, a growth phase. That being said, individuals have isolated this process, this pathway to say, because protein stimulates mTOR, which it does, also exercise stimulates mTOR, because again, it's a protein synthesis growth pathway. These things are not necessarily bad. Right. 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 And there's mTOR in the pancreas, which is different than mTOR in the muscle. And the, the anti-animal narrative has tried to find ways to target protein and specifically animal-based protein. So that's where the um, mTOR story kind of originates. But the biggest stimulator of mTOR is insulin. And that is really from excess high carbohydrates. Right. So we have, so mTOR is this nutrient sensing pathway, right? So protein, whether it comes from animals or plants is going to drive it, correct? That's right. And it's driven by different um, stimuluses. So for example, in the liver and pancreas, it would be insulin would be the bigger driver as opposed to amino acids. Amino acids, yeah. 
No, you bring up an excellent point here. I don't think people are aware that insulin has a biphasic release. So there's sort of this two, there's these two um, ways that insulin is rolled out, right? So phase one and phase Mm -hmm. two, can you explain what those are and how that's different in terms of proteins versus uh, insulin? Yeah. So people talk about how um, protein causes an increase in insulin. Well, protein causes an increase in the phase one response, which is the preformed insulin in the pancreas. So it's, you have a protein meal, it causes a very slight spike in insulin, and that's really to stimulate growth. So it then stimulates mTOR. Leucine with insulin stimulates mTOR, and you get a, a, a protein synthesis. The issue with um, the biphasic response is protein actually doesn't cause that second phase response of needing the body to generate more insulin. That's purely a carbohydrate and excess carbohydrate thing. Individuals should not be confused. Protein does cause an increase in insulin. It is very slight and not to the extent as a carbohydrate meal. It is and a this, is one so, this is so incredibly important because when we think about phase one, you know, I'll just extend and, you know, build on what you said that phase one is just literally to get the stuff that you eat into the periphery. And it's a 10 minute thing. It's 10 minutes and then it's gone. Whereas that phase two release is, a you know, it can reach, it's like two to three hours postprandial, right? So, and is that the difference then between a leucine mediated mTOR response versus an insulin mediated mTOR response. So the insulin mediated mTOR is going to, la- is, is there a... I think that's a really, I, I don't think that we know that answer. I think that's really astute. Um, mTOR is incredibly complex and nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and a once, recent discovery. It's recent as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, yeah. the, gram, the, the father of mTOR is really Sabatini mm-hmm. um, and he's out of MIT. So what you're saying is, is a really good point. And, and I don't know if we if the science knows the answer to that, the, um, the mTOR system does go through a period of about four to five hours to reset, but once it's stimulated, it's, it's active. The issue with the insulin is that people are eating, uh, high carbohydrates throughout the day. So they're, or they're snacking on carbs or they're, they're, um, kind of grazing. And then this, it's the perpetual stimulation of mTOR Mm -hmm. that is a problem. But again, going back to uh, the very fundamentals is it's not a initiator of cancer. So the studies, you know, when you look at uh, risk ratios, so the, the risk of doing this thing and getting this result, the risk of smoking uh, to getting lung cancer. Mm-hmm. So when you look statistically, that relative risk has to be greater than two, okay? To be- a doubling, so if, like you have to right. double it. So if you yeah. smoke, the number, the relative risk is 12 that you'll mm-hmm. get cancer. Yeah, like a 12x increase. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that, but if you eat protein, it's the relative risk is 1.2 to 1.3, which means there's no risk. So right. the data has never supported a dietary connection between um, eating dietary protein and getting cancer. This, again, is this anti-animal narrative that's taken one pathway, the mTOR pathway, and said, okay, well, if this pathway is turned on in cancer, protein must cause it. But this pathway is turned on on, in exercise as well. But no one says, well, exercise causes cancer. 
Mm-hmm. And therefore we shouldn't exercise. Correct. So again, this yeah. goes back to an anti-animal narrative. Um, there is that initiation and prolongation phase when it comes to uh, cancer as it is, um, you know, that dysregulation that happens. Mm-hmm. mTOR and growth has never been involved in an initiation or, or defect of the genome. It's, it's just, it's not a... Um, it's not an argument that makes sense. And then when you look at the studies, so there's some studies out of, um, I think, Davis, and uh, they use these overfed obese mouse models that are ad libitum fed mm-hmm. carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. So all the studies as it relates to mTOR are overfed, insulin driven. Over- right. Obese. Right. Yeah, so there's a couple limitations there. One, you know, we're not necessarily obese. These studies haven't looked at, if you're looking at animal models, they don't really translate 100% one-to-one to humans. And then if you're only looking at obese, metabolically deranged rats to begin with, you're going to see a different result versus if you looked at, you know, you or me. Right. So let's let's bring this, uh, and I like what you said there around absolute versus relative risk. And this is, I think, a perfect segue. I know we've already touched on game changers a little bit. You know, you wrote an Instagram post, and I'll link this Instagram post in our show notes because you were pointing out some of the shortcomings of the film. You know, this reliance on you know epidemiological studies, uh, not telling the entire truth with McGregor and, and Diaz, and you know, for the most part, I thought people were thanking you for your thoughts. It was, you know, it was, it was a thank you so much for telling us how you think. But then there was some really, there was some ugliness in, in some of the comments. There and was a lot. There was a lot. I had to block and delete a lot of people. They're crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I say this with love and respect for people who choose to be vegan, but sometimes they are the worst advocates for their cause because yeah. they're so bloodthirsty to, um, to attack people that are that have contra, you know, that that have views that are that contraindicate their own, and I think it's it's important for us to be able to have a non-hysterical narrative and discussion totally. around it. And you know, if you came on this podcast and you had a completely different view from from me, I would not sit here and try to pick you apart. And this is, you know, I uh, the the what's his name, uh, James Wilkes, you know, just. This Joe Rogan, he was just picking Chris Cresser apart, and I thought it was just such a terrible debate uh, from that perspective. But what I would like for you to do, if you can, is just share your thoughts, overall thoughts on the film. You know, were there things you liked about it? Were there things that fell short? And let's kind of talk about those things. Um, I'm really glad that number one, you called it a film because a documentary typically shows both sides to a story. Mm-hmm. And this was a propaganda-driven film, which the executive producer invested 140, I think he's the CEO of a pea protein company. Mm-hmm. He invest, invested $140 million into a company, and then a film came out about how you should go more plant-based. I really want that hour and a half of my life back <laughs> because I was sitting there watching it, and the only reason I watched it is because I got so many questions. Mm-hmm. It was so poorly done. In fact, I don't even know what parts of the science that it are true that I could pull out of that film, but it's not meant to be science. It's meant to be entertainment. Mm-hmm. The one thing that would be positive with the takeaway is that there are various diets of the human bo- that the human body can manage. 
and succeed at. I do have some professional athletes that are vegan and they're incredible. Um, one of my best friends is an orthopedic surgeon and, and she's vegan and she just ran a hundred miles, right? She's incredible. So I think that it, it does good. It, it does a good job to show diversity, mm-hmm. but the truth is it's a fear mongering propaganda film that is dangerous for the public and dangerous for our aging population. There's little to no science in that film. I mean, listen, they said that um, you can get the same amount of protein from a peanut butter sandwich. I mean, mm-hmm. these are hard and fast numbers. Mm-hmm. The burrito study, I mean, that's so ridiculous The, you know, that erections are going to be better. I mean, I see in my clinic, those that are vegan and vegetarian have lower testosterone, higher sex hormone binding globulin, yeah. I mean, it's just not... It's, well, there's also like the more insulin you have. I mean, this is a direct relationship to insulin. Like the higher your insulin, the lower your SHBG uh, is going to be anyway. So this is... I mean, know, it was, yeah. there, was no, there was almost no science in this film. And uh, they didn't show you all the athletes that dropped out. They didn't show you the trajectory of their careers where they got injured. Mm. That the majority of those athletes, they don't define what their diet was, what kind of vegetarian are you defining vegetarian by eating um, eggs and fish? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that strong man who actually uh, was considered the strong man in his one event eats 400 grams of protein a day and eats a bunch of protein shakes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And his performance, he was, you know, outclassed or, uh, you know, I think in 2019, I don't remember the date, but they did 300 pounds more than what he did in that uh, event. Mm -hmm. You know, it it was very cherry picked and really poorly done. And it's dangerous for people to think that that's where they're getting science. Um, Yeah. And I think this is, you know, when we talk about, again, I I, I feel like I'm a broken record, but the information versus application part of it. So the information... Uh, you know, you can even question the information that was presented, as you were saying, like these epidemiological studies, they give people these questionnaires and say, you know, what did you eat over the last four months, six months? No, what did you eat oh, 10 years ago? Fruit, right. Fruit, food frequency questionnaires. Yeah. Taking epidemiological data from 10 years ago. Right. And I, I can't remember what I had last week. I, totally. no, I was saying the same thing. I can't remember what I had last week. If you ask me Monday what I had, I have no idea. So bad. And we have randomized controlled trials. There are multiple randomized controlled trials that support high quality protein. Mm-hmm. There are no randomized controlled trials that support vegetarianism. There's not one. Doesn't mean I'm against it. I was vegetarian macrobiotic for many years. Mm-hmm. For many years. But you you can make an emotional decision and be very clear that this is your emotional decision. But you cannot say I'm doing this because this is better for my health. 100% not true. I mean, I think when you look at vegetarian and veganism compared to a standard American diet, it is better. You know, we, anything is better than the yeah, standard American true. diet. It's you know, true. you will see, you know, if you start to eat more plants, you know, I was saying before, you'll get all the nutrient de- you know, you're going to get the fiber and you're going to get the polyphenols and the, all those, all the flavonoids, all those things. But it is almost, a, it's, it's transient. And if you don't, what I would like to see is a study looking at not vegetarians and vegans versus the standard American diet, but vegetarian and or vegan and contrast that with more of a, you know, I would call it an omnivore. So you're, you're still eating, 
you know, primarily plants, but then you have some, you have protein on your plate that is derived from animals. That study, to my knowledge, and if I'm wrong, I, please correct me, but I don't think that that study has been done. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen one yet. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, that's the next, that's the next iteration of this conversation because I get, I, I become, you know, frankly bored, but annoyed with this constant, you know, well, vegetarian is better. Well, keto is better. Well, paleo is better. Well, and there's no one diet for the human. There's no one. We all have, you and I are very similar, probably very, if we looked at our genomic map, we would probably find that we're very similar, but that doesn't mean that just because it it works for me, it's going to work for someone else. So there's so many things that come into play with 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 an optimal diet like you were saying mm-hmm. your your girlfriend is a, a vegan and she ran a hundred I mean that's extraordinary that's extraordinary and, and her constitution totally may completely complement and allow for that yes and we're gonna find there's some data there's some research being done right now that looks at the microbiome and that those with oh, yeah. a very, very high fiber diet vegan style diet why do they not become deficient so significantly deficient and there is some evidence and it hasn't been published yet you know that points out that they that the microbiome that the bacteria is actually extracting and you know breaking down the amino acids mm-hmm. to the for the requirement of the human which is interesting that so is someone interesting. could eat a very low protein diet and their microbiome has the capacity to generate yeah. the amino acids yeah yeah. I mean, that blows my mind, but it, it makes sense. There's just so much we don't know. Yeah. And there was a lot of, I guess my other issue with the film was this, this idea of healthy user bias. So I've talked, we, I, can, I think I already mentioned this, but vegans are so health conscious already. Yeah. So is it the vegan diet or is it because they are so conscious around not smoking, not drinking, being physically active, activating their parasympathetic, you know, they do yoga or they do meditation or breath work. This is you know, there's these spurious correlations that you, or these confounding variables rather that you can't sort of, is it the plants or is it that their lifestyle is just far superior to the standard American lifestyle that you're seeing some of these benefits from? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, so that's, uh, that was kind of my issue uh, in general uh, with that movie. I would say in terms of what I liked about it, I agree with the idea that plants are good. We should be eating plants. There are, you cannot really refute the, the amount of data that is plants are good for us. You know, I had uh, Dr. Um, David Sinclair on the podcast and he was talking about the xenohormetic stress of stressed out plants, right? So the resveratrols and the ECGCs from green tea and all this kind of stuff. So that I'm, I'm all in for, but I am not all in for manipulating data and if it's not going to be, I mean, Dr. Walter Longo has this fasting mimetic diet, right? So it's like five days, you caloric restrict, but there's a reason why his fasting program includes food because he knows that humans are not going to go five days without food. It's just too hard. And that's, you know, again, call it a weak argument, but this is a clinical pattern that I've seen. It is too hard for vegetarians and vegans to make sure that they are getting the appropriate amount of amino acids and proteins from a plant-based diet. They, it requires an extraordinary amount of understanding. Uh, you clearly have colleagues that are that are doing it and 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 thriving on it. Yep. But for the general population, it's just easier to get it from a steak. Yeah, I mean, couldn't agree more. 
So let's talk about mindset because uh, one of the things I love and admire about you is your grit and your perseverance. Uh, even in the you know in the face of we just talked about animal proteins, and I'm I'm assuming there's going to be some flack around that. But you work a lot with military. You work with Navy SEALs. You work with you know the Canadian military. I suspect from their training that they have a totally different mindset than that of civilians. <laughs> yes, but it can be taught. They, it, it, there are components to their mindset that absolutely can be applicable and practiced. So what, is, what are some of the observations that you see in that population that we don't see uh, prevalent in, in, civilian, in the yes. civilian population? Well, first of all, my husband is a Navy SEAL. Um, so it's very interesting to see it both professionally and personally. Who's hilarious, by the way. When he takes over your Instagram, that's I love when he does that. Everybody, everybody messages yeah. about that. He, he is really funny. Mm-hmm. And that actually is one of their superpowers is humor. It could literally be the worst situation ever, and they're making jokes about it. Mm-hmm. It is uncanny, their capacity for optimism. It is. What other choice is there when you're faced? Un- it is yeah. outrageous. It is outrageous, their uh, capacity for optimism. I had one guy, and uh, he is a 20-year SEAL. He's a breacher, so he's a big kind of tree trunk Texan. Been in the teams for 20 years and um, never got injured in combat. Was home from a deployment and on his motorcycle going, I don't know, five miles an hour. And he was struck by a 17-year-old girl who was texting and driving. Mm. and he lost his leg mm. to see my clinic. And, you know, nobody, nobody really is going to punch a five foot one, like woman like myself in the face. So I, when I get these guys in the, the clinic, I have um, ability to be able to ask them questions that maybe another physician wouldn't prod. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, Hey, Brian, how are you doing? And he looks at me, he's like, well, doc, you know, I'm having this phantom limb, limb pain and, you know, I was hoping you can help me with it. And I, I look at him again and I'm like, Brian, I mean, how are you really doing? And he looks at me, totally bewildered, and he's like, uh, doc, what are you talking about? And I said to him, well, what do you mean? What am I talking about? And I go and I reiterate his story about he's this big dude and he never got hurt. And he looks at me just straight. And he goes, uh, Doc, that was six months ago. Literally. <laughs> Wait, what? So I, I called Shane. And I, I tell the story a lot. And I called Shane. They're, they're friends. And Shane had spoke with them and knew he was coming in. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they talk. And I called Shane. And he, and he said, you know, well, how was Brian's visit? And I said, well, you know, I can't really talk about it. But what I can tell you is that when I asked him how he was doing, like deeply about losing his leg, and he looked at me and he said, uh, "Yeah, that was six months ago." Mm-hmm. Like and I hear this on, like it's it's yeah, in he the had past. Moved off the X, so he yeah. had moved off the X. He had literally moved off the X, mm-hmm. and there's this dead silence on the other end from Shane, and Shane's like, uh, "Yeah, babe, that was six months ago. Why? Are you, what are you even talking about?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's like I this mean, there mental is, grit and this, yeah, yeah. I mean, most of us are still talking about what happened two years ago. Oh, oh I was from so childhood. Hurt. Forget, forget two years ago. I'm still <laughs> talking about what's happened from childhood. <laughs> guys are not like that. Yeah. It, it doesn't exist. It mm-hmm. is. This is my new norm. What do I got to do? 
And uh, this is how it rolls. And it is legitimate and it is deep and it is not an effort. That's incredible. And so how do you think we can apply? So I would love to, I mean, I full tra- I would not, I would be hung up with the lost leg. That would be catastrophic to me. I can't even imagine, you know, the empathy, the, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. So if you, if you take that sort of resilience and that forward looking perspective, what, how can we apply that, you know, as a population, how can I, or how can I, let's yeah. forget about the population. How can I take that? It's what can I learn re- from him? I mean, it's all about reframing and, and I witness so, I, you know, I work, a lot of my patient population are Navy SEALs. Um, they have to be combat operators. So the, the sector of the, the military that I take are, are combat operators. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, that's not all my practice because there's only so many of them. Um, mm-hmm. But it, they have a way of reframing that is practiced and instantaneous. So we all think practice makes perfect, but really practice, and I'm talking about the mental practice, makes permanent. Mm, mm-hmm. Practice makes permanent. Mm-hmm. Whatever the story is that you're telling yourself, and it's not even the story, whatever the networks that you utilize to think, they become permanent. Yeah, Literally, our things could be going up in flames. And my husband is going to make a joke about it. Mm-hmm. Is because he knows whenever something gets really bad, it's th- there is an instantaneous reframing, and it's funny. Whereas, and there's no point in losing your mind. Like it, you know, your chances of survival if you keep a cool head, I would imagine, are much greater than if you are freaking out and you are in fight or flight and you can't think. You can't use your frontal lobe for executive decision making and strategy. Totally. Yeah. I mean, so their their capacity is. It's quick-witted and they, they don't get stuck. So they're not reliving. They, they don't relive. They just move on quickly. And I like what you're talking about with practice makes permanent because just like an exercise, you know, I've had this goal all year to do five unassisted chin-ups. When I first started at the beginning of the year, I could do zero of the five. And it took me easily seven months to do the first one. And then of course, as soon as you kind of get that one, the second one comes a little easier, the third one, but it's the same when you're training your mind as it is training your somatic, your, your body as well. Like it's Mm -hmm. just the consistent application of that strategy over time that develops that toughness. And there's no storytelling. They don't have this narrative. Mm. I see it. A lot of the patients that I have that struggle have a narrative. Mm Mm-hmm. And their that they're tethered to that they that they yeah. want that they yes. often it, it's part of their. I would see this a lot with my chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia patients. I would notice that they would say, "My fibromyalgia, my." They mm. would they would it was it was integrated. The label was integrated into their sense of self. Um, so there was a lot of coaching around. It's not your fibromyalgia. It's just fibromyalgia. Right and now, totally, yeah. and yeah. and there doesn't have to be a narrative, right? There doesn't have to be a narrative around it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an execution. And my a really good friend named Jason Redman, and he's a pretty famous SEAL, incredible guy. has a book called um, has many books. So, well, the, actually, let me rephrase that. This is his second book. So he has the the Trident and Overcome, and you know, really watching him uh, talk about his injuries. So he had 
40 surgeries and multiple gunshot wounds to the face and the arm. And one went through his skull. And, you know, you talk to him and he just says, you know, you got life is going to ambush you and there are going to be life ambushes, but you prepare for it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you train for it. You expect it. You yeah. expect it. And when yeah. it happens, you move off the X quickly. Mm. I mean, this is a guy who, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a big orange sign and he became very famous for a sign that he put on the, the door that said, if you're coming in here to feel bad for me, you know, go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. This is a, a room full of optimism and hope and I'm going to make a full recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, and essentially, if you're not comfortable with that, move on. Love that. And, and so their capacity to heal is, is greater because they don't have these mental blocks of, oh my God, I can't believe this happened, or I'm going to worry about this or worry about whatever is going on in my life. They, they, they don't have that. And I think you have spoken about this before in terms of the different, and this may play into it, the different types of stress and how we relate to it. So you've talked about you stress and distress and the difference between them. Yeah. I, yeah. Can you explain that for, uh, for the listeners? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting when we think of stress, people always think of fight or flight, mm-hmm. but that's only one application of stress. There's fight or flight. There's tendon befriend. And then there's the courage response. And hands down, the most successful patients of mine have the courage response. And what that means is it's, it's like if there's two guys ready, getting ready to jump off of an airplane, you have one guy whose blood pressure is you know, 140 over 90, and, and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to do this. This is horrible. You know, my life is going to be over. I can't believe I'm jumping, you know, jumping out of the plane. And then you have a guy standing next to him and he's having the same physical stress response where his blood pressure is 140 over 90 and his heart is racing and he's, you know, has heart palpitation. And instead his interpretation is, man, I cannot wait to do this jump. Mm -hmm. I'm going to crush it. Mm -hmm. They're literally having the same physiological experience, but the one defining factor is one is interpreting it as fight or flight and the other is interpreting it as a courage response. Two different ends of the same. It's sort of the same spectrum, but they're two different ends of that spectrum. One, it's, 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 right. The stimulus yeah. is the same, but yeah. the output in the experience, that internal experience is totally different. It's so interesting that you say that. I often, when I am nervous, so one of my first interviews on the podcast was Elizabeth Gilbert, who I've just adored for years. And yeah. I was going into the interview, I was like, oh my God, I'm so nervous. And then Giovanni, my partner was like, what are you? And I was like, oh no, no, I'm excited. I'm, you know, just that, just that little like nervous versus excited. And, you know, you go into it. um, And one of the things I've learned, um, and this, maybe this may resonate with you. I'm not sure if it does, but I have, I always have come to the conclusion that as long as I do my best, whatever the outcome is, whether I'm going to, if I'm jumping out of the airplane and I splat or if I jump out of the airplane and it's, it's a successful landing, as long as I know that before I jump, I've done my work, I've done, I've put my best foot forward. It's actually the effort that counts. It's the process. It's not the outcome, even though of course we all want a great outcome and I'm not trying to divorce you from that or anybody from that who's listening, but I love this idea of, and I 
keep talking about it uh, with different guests and kind of seeing how it lands. But I love this idea of bringing back the idea of effort is cool and and putting like uh, you know in preparation for our interview, I have you know I've, I have I don't know seventeen pages of notes and 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 I and I'm proud of that because I think whether or not I bombed on this conversation or not, I know that going into it, I tried my absolute best with the information and the tools that I had. Mm -hmm. So no matter what the outcome is, I can't be upset with what happens because I know internally that I've done what I am. I have actually, I've actualized my capacity. And I think that that's brilliant and helpful for everybody listening. You know, it is, you know, it's oftentimes people think about habits and kind of the end result, but it's really about believing who you are and that identity. And knowing, yeah, and getting in touch with who you are and saying, yeah. You know, it's, it's like, are you doing things that identify you as someone who puts in effort? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, the identity is, is, is you're doing the, the steps necessary to execute. Mm-hmm. Right. No. I love that. You know. I, I have to say, I am so impressed with your breadth of knowledge, the way that you explain things. It's so simple, but it's it, the things that we're talking about is, are very complex things. Very complex. And you are able to distill it in a very easy to understand way. So I just want to thank you so much for your brain, uh, for your time. I know uh, you have a little baby to get uh, to get back to. I just wanted to, you know, if anybody listening to this wants to work with you, I know you have a clinic. I don't know if you're accepting new patients, but if people want to find you, let's say online or, or yeah. in real life, where can, where can people go to find you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's really nice to have a conversation with someone who's incredibly well-prepared. And I've done a lot of interviews and I have to say the time that you spent preparing was very obvious. Thank you. To me. So Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. They can find me on Instagram. I'm very active at Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. My website, which is going through a rebrand, but also they can find me there at drgabriellelyon.com. And I do send out a weekly newsletter and that comes out on Sunday and I will be getting that going again. I took a little break uh, with the maternity leave and the baby, um, but I put evidence-based articles in there. Uh, places that I'm speaking, things that I've seen, and I always do a quote that I've written, um, and I try to make it very valuable for the reader because I know everyone is kind of vying for your time. They can find me on Twitter and Facebook with the same name, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and then Twitter is the same. And I'll be—I'm in the process of writing a book, and uh, hopefully that will be get you know, that will get done in the next nine months. <laughs> the second baby, the second child. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I uh, have a, a muscle centric course coming out. Oh, that's exciting. That's exciting. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. G. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W dot C-O. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, 
uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social, on Twitter, it's Dr. underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Dr. Stephanie Estima. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-E-S-T-I-M-A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor-patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.